This is Adrena Eiffel, and you're listening to Caribbean Power Lunch. Podcast World. This is Caribbean Power Lunch, where we feature Black-owned businesses. I am your host, Kevin Valley, and today is about the diaspora. Today is about protecting your personal legacy. We have here an award-winning digital media producer, a marketer, lecturer, and excellent storyteller, Adrena Eiffel. Adrena, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Kevin. So glad to join you today to chit-chat. I have to mention this, you know, I thank you for being such a loyal listener of the show. Thank you for, for always commenting on the, on the Instagram post. So anybody who, who follows the Instagram page and you see a comment from Colorful Content, that is Adrena blessing us with her love and support. Well, thank you for providing the content. I mean, you have kept me uh, awake on a long drive and intellectually stimulated and I learned so much. So keep it going. Awesome. Awesome. Well, as you know, this podcast is all about telling the, the stories, the untold stories of Black entrepreneurs from the Caribbean. So doing my research on you, I haven't actually seen your story. I know you tell other people's stories all the time, but I've never actually heard your story. Adrina, what is your story? Where do you start from? Tell us about your diaspora experience. I mean, just from the word go, let's go. So this is interesting. And one of the reasons I guess I don't really tell my story is because as a producer, I'm really great at telling other people's stories. So this is probably one of the first times I'm telling it. So here goes. <laughs> I am originally from Washington, D.C., USA. And um, my father is originally from Trinidad, San Fernando. And my mother is from uh, North Carolina and Virginia. So uh, they met in Washington, D.C. and had a great marriage and you know i am their only child so this was a, it was great and they were both incredibly brilliant i would say and growing up in a multicultural household was i think a complete blessing for me because i got exposed to a wider world beyond my you know five blocks that was just second nature so my love for the Caribbean comes from birth and my love for history and culture comes from both of them. And so a lot of history and culture was taught in the household, you know, was sort of an, my everyday experience. So your dad, is it that your dad came up to DC to work or did he come there on vacation and just meet this creature of a woman and decide, <laughs> hey, well, I'm migrating, I need my visa and he's saying, hey, what's happening? <laughs> Well, the story they told me was they actually, they both came to D.C. to um, further their education. My father went to Howard. He's a two-time Howard graduate. And interestingly enough, his first day in Washington, D.C. was the day of the March on Washington. And so that was his experience of the U.S., remarkable as it was. So, you know, they're very much steeped in history and have real respect for our global black history. Okay. Okay. And, I, and as are you. So I mean, tell me about your, your childhood growing up there in D- Washington, DC, Caribbean father, American mother, you know, so tell me what I mean in that household, culturally, everything, what, what were you exposed to? Well, I was exposed to all the cultures, 
everything was just part of our my everyday. And during Washington, D.C., during that time period, the Caribbean community was very strong. The sort of the hub of it was the local roti shops, the local, you know, there's a lot of entrepreneurship. Both my parents were entrepreneurs. My father was an attorney, um, had his own law practice. My mother was an educator and always did a lot of entrepreneurial things. So supporting Black business, supporting small business was just natural. They always like were seeking out ways to use vendors and people in the community that had a talent and had a skill. That was their first go-to. In terms of culture and history, learning side by side, you know, we had all the encyclopedias, the Black American encyclopedias, world book, everything. So it wasn't just limited to, in America, we have these, or the textbooks, you get a paragraph about Black history and it's all the same five people. Like that did not go over in my house. Everything, you know, I knew about Eric Williams from, I can't even remember before I could probably spell. Oh, wow. Uriah Butler, everybody I knew about at the same time as I knew about Marcus Garvey or Martin Luther King or Coretta Scott King or Rosa Parks. They were all hand in hand. So I don't know anything different. So you, you got Black American history, you got Black Caribbean history. So you learn about all the revolutionaries from the Caribbean, the Toussaint Louverture and all these guys. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. And many of my aunts studied in England. So I knew about that sort of experience and also the continent about all of the great leaders and great people and cultures, you know, original African history. I was expected to know that. Okay. Okay. All right. Good. So is it that you brought about this passion for history or is it like black history or is there a particular type of history or is that you love all history? I think I love a black history. I have an appreciation for all history. I didn't know where it was going to take me, but I, if I look back, it was sort of woven in all of my projects that I did. I always picked a country and really sort of like, even when I picked Italy as a country in my fourth grade um, book report, I was probably looking for the African influence in Italy. But then by the time I got to college, I chose political science as a major. Um, I went to Williams College, and it was a great experience because it really allowed me to follow that path. So within there, you could choose an area of concentration, and I chose international relations, and I did an honors thesis on racial politics of Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, all right, all right. So, I mean, all that time, right? So, your dad is living up in DC. How often are you coming back to Trinidad, or how are you are you visiting your your dad's home country and stuff? And what made you fall in love with Trinidad, other than these stories that you know your dad would tell you? I think it was just such a part of me. The first time I visited, I was about eight, but before that, my family would come up like a, every year. A different person would come up every year to visit for a significant part of time. My grandparents would come, my aunts, my uncles would come, my cousins would come. So they'd always bring things for me. So I always had, you know, sugar cake. I was looking for that when I was a kid, you know, and um, they would bring me dolls and flags and just t-shirts and all the stuff. So it was always part. Um, And then uh, my uncle was a photographer. He used to work for the Guardian 
he had like 50 years of photos. So every time we would come, he would take us all over the country and do various things. So it wasn't really sort of limited to just going off Coffee Street and hanging out, but it was, we were everywhere. So, you know, I just knew that. And I think probably we would go maybe every other year after that for about, you know, whenever spring break or holiday would come, we would go. Okay. So in 2002, you you started a company called Double Back Global Group, right? And you specialize in preserving and producing culture and history projects. So tell me how, I mean, how how did you stumble upon that as opposed to going and working for the, I don't know, the UN? Because you had only pedigree, right? You had had knowledge of, of history. You studied in Williams. You all set up to have a nice job there. How come you just decided, hey, well, screw that. I'm going to start my own business. I'm going to do this really cool thing where I'm going to tell other people's stories and document it and all these things. So I would say that this is my fifth career. So after uh, college, I went to business school at Howard University. And I was really focused on being in the nonprofit arena, particularly in international development, something around that area. Why do you want to get into the nonprofit person? I think I've always been mission-driven, so I wanted to really be purpose-minded. But I wanted to get away from this first world, second world, third world thing because I found it very problematic and work to find a way that that interdependence was rewarded, that countries weren't so relegated to certain strata and forever dependent on bigger countries and economic growth and all of that. Well, I soon discovered that, you know, there are these underlying reasons. <laughs> My optimism kind of dwindled to see what sort of impact one person could have in the machinery. But I did find a love for marketing within that and being able to tell a story, being able to tell those stories that aren't often heard, but are fundamental in terms of how we see ourselves how we continue to change that narrative and become empowered and how that affects generations to come. I'm interested in knowing where did you learn to tell stories per se, right? Because I don't mean, I want to know, is it like from your dad? Because you know, they say Caribbean people are excellent storytellers. I'm not sure. It might've been because my parents required more than a one word answer to most of their questions. And so I loved writing. I loved fiction writing, creative writing. And then, you know what? Also, I was really impacted by the film Eyes on the Prize, which told the story of the civil rights movement in the U.S. And with that visual story and also the first person accounts made my maternal grandparents and my mother's experience in Jim Crow and segregation U.S., come to life. Because as we all know, we all listen to our parents or older relatives tell stories. And at a certain point, like when you're 13, you think they're droning on and on and you'd rather be doing something else, right? So they had told me the stories about sitting on the back of the bus, discrimination, all sorts of things that were every day part of their lives. And so I knew that. I had witnessed some things myself. But when I saw it on film, I knew that it wasn't an isolated incident. When I saw dogs chasing children my age, Mm. I knew that this was something that I could have never appreciated fully until I saw that because it wasn't in my textbooks. My teachers weren't telling me this. 
But this film showed me and impacted me. And so I understood then the power of film and I understood the power of storytelling. And I was committed to figuring out ways to keep these stories alive, thus preserved, so that 100, 200 years from now, even whatever the textbook says, you can go and hear an original voice, an original account, see actual photos, and know for yourself what actually happened. Yeah, that's awesome, you know, because, I mean, people come, people go, but once, when you put out a piece of content also, I mean, that content stay, is there forever. It gets passed on. It, that content out survives, outlives you and me. Mm-hmm. So I want to know, tell me about landing your first gig, that first project. How did you handle that? You know, was that, was that nerve wracking for you? Yeah, in a way it was. So when I say it was my fifth career, I think all these different careers prepared me. And I often tell young people that whatever you decide you want to do at 17, just be open to whatever happens next and get those foundational skills, the reading, the writing, the arithmetic, get all those down pat because you never know where it's going to take you. And so I went back to school to study documentary film because I had an idea in my head that I wanted to do this particular film and I couldn't find anybody else to do it for me. I had a friend at the time who was in film production, but this wasn't her passion and I was really passionate about the story. So I wanted to go to school to figure out how to do it myself to get it done. And once I started doing that and started really working in film, people who were very steeped in content asked me to help them do a video recording. Uh, Because you were out there doing it already. Yes. And so the business evolved from there. And then also they knew that I would get it done. And so that came from my previous experience in being a manager and marketing, public relations, and other things that basically what a producer is, you get things done. And so that became sort of the crossroads where people kept coming to me saying, okay, I have this idea, you know, I'm a professor, I'm running this organization. Can you take this content, take these books, take these photographs and do something with them for me? And come back to me in two months and I need to show it at an event. And so that's what I started doing. So what was your first project about? The first film I did was my own film um, about Congressman Robert Smalls. He was formerly enslaved in the state of South Carolina. And after reconstruction, after the civil war, he was elected for five terms in the U S Congress. And so I, was really fascinated about the 21 men who had served during that period from the early 1870s to 1901. And his story was so well-preserved that I wanted to use his as an example to talk about this era and the era of Black leadership during that time period. So I did that film and that led me to my next big client, which was the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. And they wanted to do a virtual library of the history of Blacks in Congress. In my conversation with them about my film, they said, well, what do you think about this? I said, that sounds great. And they said, well, can you do it? I said, well, sure. And so that relationship lasted over 10 years, and it was really, really an amazing experience. And that's a patriot's journey from slavery to Capitol Hill. 
Correct. Okay. And how long does it take you to put together a project like that, though? Like, what's that research process like? Well, for my film, it took 10 years. Now, let me tell you this, though. I had the idea. And then this is when I tried to get other people to do it. I said, okay, I know. I think I can write it. But I want somebody else to film it and produce it. And people were, you know, oh, I think it's a great idea, but nobody was going to take it on. And like, I didn't have like millions of dollars to bankroll them to do it. So I needed somebody who was passionate as I was. So then I went back to school and I eventually got it done. So that's why it took those 10 years. And it was my first film. So your first film took 10 years? Yes. When your first film takes 10 years, do you really feel like doing a second film? Like what, what drives you to say, all right, let me do another 10 years. I go for film number two. I have to say that it is, the next film is daunting, which is why it's still on paper because it really takes a lot out of you. And that was at a time when I didn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. So I had a lot of time to really write and ruminate and, try different things and recruit people to help me and fundraise and do all of that. But those who do it as a full-time job and it is a profitable job for them, I applaud them. And they, they need to be recognized for the hard work they do. All right. So I want to just kind of touch a little bit on the, uh, on the services you provide, right? So your overall goal is to help people plan, produce, and preserve their personal legacy, right? And you offer services like cultural heritage management, documentary, and multimedia production. Of course, I'm reading. Educational curriculum development and event management and marketing, right? So tell us about this cultural heritage management. What does this look like? That's a great question. It looks like, in general, it looks like I have personal services I do, and then I work with um, businesses and organizations, and that's on the business and organizational side. So I work with institutions, organizations, agencies, and corporations to take all of their cultural assets, their historical assets, and be able to, one, preserve them, and then also use them to tell their story. So that can be a variety of different things. That's where the events come in into play. So I once worked with the National Archives, um, looking at the Bill of Rights, and we did a five-city tour around the United States, looking at specific things, and it was a sort of a, a symposium and talkback. So I produced that and really got involved in looking at contemporary issues as it related to a 225-year-old document. It can also be archival management, which is partly what I did with the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation, is taking the archives of the Congressional Black Caucus and digitizing them, simply making them into digital format. If you can imagine documents from the first meeting in 1971 of the Congressional Black Caucus, typewritten. How do we turn that into a digital format that can be seen all across the world? We had people from Australia, India, Russia, San Francisco, Kentucky, Washington, D.C., Trinidad, Colombia, South America, downloading these documents to read them and use them in classrooms and in whatever research um, was going on. Also involving strategic planning to figure out how, if you have a warehouse full of these materials, how are you going to be able to share them with a wider audience? How are you going to be able to put them in a story? What are those best practices? 
So those are the things that I do for larger institutions. And also, how do we put them online? How do you make them accessible through websites so that people can see them on their uh, mobile devices and use them in artistic and other ways that we haven't even imagined? Personally, I do work with several people who have personal collections, authors, local civic leaders who want to know what to do with all these important papers. They've made significant contributions to their community, and they're trying to think about what is their legacy, what to do with that, how to keep these important things alive after they're gone. So we talk about that, Who, what institutions to give those to, what does that look like, what sort of restrictions can they put on those, their artifacts, and just really how to make preserve them so that time and outside elements such as dust or unfortunately Hurricane Katrina here and Hurricane Maria and different things, we've lost a lot of important things. And so using the digital format to be able to preserve those things is critical at this particular time. So digitization is a big part of your business. Yes. In terms of um, preserving your personal legacy, right? And preserving your documents and everything, you have to make sure that everything is in a acid-free archival safe, right? Yes. So how many people out there like at risk for this? How many people out there have acid in their safes and they just and they're at risk of losing their personal documents? Well, there's acid in the environment. It's just naturally. So if you notice, like maybe when you were a kid, the photos that you took as a kid and you look in your parents' photo albums, then you see, you know, it's browning around the edges. Things are happening. And it's much easier now. You can go to your office supply store, and if you look on the box, it usually will see acid-free, archival safe. Get those. The things without the PVC plastic in it is what you should put your most precious documents. Your birth certificate, your important papers, all the things that make legitimize who you are in this world, those you should keep safe in a preservation safe. So the stainless steel cabinets aren't good enough? It's probably better to put them in some sort of shield because you somebody may open and close that drawer. And also, you know, little insects sometimes like to eat paper. Makes sense, makes sense. All right, so I want to talk about your process. So tell me about the process. So somebody gives you this really difficult job. So tell me about this thing that happened 200 years ago. And I want to full, I want to full spare no details. Tell me about your process from putting that story together and putting the production together. And well, is that a 10 year process or what's happening? No, it's not 10 years anymore. <laughs> it's got to be shorter. <laughs> <laughs> you, got, you cut it down to five. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, it depends. So if you were to come to me and you were to say, okay, I have this. I have all this material and I feel like there's an important story that needs to be told. How can I help you? I would talk to you about what you think is the most important story that's to be told. I would talk about who do you want to share this with? Is it, do you want to share with your family? Do you want to share with a wider audience? Sort of what's your goal in this? And then I would start going through the materials as much as possible and doing research. I love doing the research and I think it's invaluable. Finding out what is actually in the material that you're, you're hoping to preserve and to share, but also in the context of what was happening in the world at that time. 
Because I think people really want to know when you freeze a moment in time, that's significant. But then when you put it in context of what else was happening around that, that's when it becomes memorable and really can impact people's lives. So we would talk about that. And then we talk about the format you want to share it, right? So if it's you're writing a book, you want to do a video, you want to do an exhibit, what does that exhibit look like? Where is it going to be? Is it going to travel? What other components are critical? If it was your company, do you want it to be accessible on the phone over what amount of time? Is it a one-day thing? Is it a year-long exhibit that you want to do. So we will talk about all those particular elements and then figure out the best way to achieve what you want to do, what your goals are, and then put a plan together and execute. Is there any points where a client comes to you with a request and you say, hey, no, no, we can't do that. No, we (laughs) we just can't do that. Well, what I like to do is refer people to others who are maybe better suited than I. Okay. So what is it that you enjoy about this work though? I think learning, learning the stories. I really get uh, excited when I learn new things and that keeps me going because sometimes it can be very tedious work. It can be frustrating at times, but if I'm working on something and I'm learning something and it's a new aspect and it's probably going to open my eyes to a whole nother side of history, a whole nother group of events or people then you know that energizes me yeah so i mean what happens after the engagement though like so you, you deliver the deliver the product to client like what happens next like is it that the highest over and is on to the next one or what is there some sort of continuous something well yeah i mean i always keep up with my clients and i say my clients are my best referrals anyway so they turn out to be friends in a wider community so i always really keep in contact with them and We share resources, share good news, bad news, all of that. But in sort of the history and and culture community, it's ongoing because there's so many untold stories that in our lifetime, we'll never have be out of work because there's so much richness, so many stories to be told, and there's really not enough people to tell them. Yeah, I mean, that's what I wanted to know. Is this, is this industry a popular one? Are there many other people doing what you do? Or is this a, a very, very niche? I think it's niche in the way that maybe my approach to it. And it's really, it's interdisciplinary in that way. So it's museums, it's cultural centers. It also includes fine arts. It's academic it's nonprofit, it's for-profit, it's, I think we call it now, I would call myself a creative entrepreneur because there's a lot of different ways you can approach it. It's not just a textbook, a dissertation, an art exhibit, a museum tour. There's so many ways that people have been doing and are even doing more, particularly with technology. I mean, Virtual reality is sort of my new thing that I've been studying on and I'm going to try to find different ways to be able to bring to life stories that happen 100, 200, 300, even more years from now. And the equity part of it is, is the stories that involve global Black history aren't told as often. The resources to make them 
accessible, aren't as prioritized, and we as a community need to make it a priority. So, I mean, people who want to get into this type of work, right? Like, what should they expect and how should they prepare to handle this? I'm not sure that people know they want to get into it, but I think that they should be open to it. Because it's not necessarily you get a major in art history and go work in a museum and then you're in this space. There's so many ways to get into the space that if you have a passion as a creative entrepreneur, whatever you're doing, if you're making jewelry and you get inspired by history, and so your jewelry evokes an era of time and is empowering in that way, then you're in the field, right? And I would say as an entrepreneur, your key thing to do is to look at yourself as a business. And that's how you're going to stay afloat. Besides, I did a great thing. My artistry is great. I made a great film. But you're not quite a business yet. But you have to look at yourself as a business, right? No, I think that's extremely interesting. So how would you differentiate an entrepreneur from a business? You know, because entrepreneurship is sexy now, right? Everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, but business is boring. So, <laughs> right. So how would you differentiate that one? And how would an entrepreneur go about thinking of himself or herself as a business? So I'm going to take a step back. So I taught a class at American University for a couple of years. And in one class, I had a student who did freelance work. And so he called himself a freelancer. And so the final assignment was to write a business plan. And I was trying to explain to him that you as a freelancer are a business. And he kept pricing himself, his work at, I need to pay my rent, $300. I need to pay my health care, that's $200. And so I'm going to charge $500. I was like, no, you are a business. And so you have that. And then you're going to pay your expenses out of that particular salary but you still need more. You need to make a profit because you're a business. And that was a concept he wasn't getting because he was charging just enough to pay his bills because he didn't see himself as a business. He saw himself as a worker. And I think that as a whole, that a lot of creative entrepreneurs fall into, because like you said, they'll say I'm a creative entrepreneur, but when they do their their books and they do their pricing, they price themselves as a worker. And as a business, you need to run a profit. And you also need to price as if you yourself and your body of work is a product. So you are the target of your creativity. And so Target is not going to charge you $1 if it costs them $1 to make it. And so understanding that is, I think, the hurdle that sometimes we fall victim to. All right. So it means one thing for the entrepreneur slash creative slash freelancer slash business now to understand that. But when they're competing with other entrepreneurs slash creatives slash freelancers slash businesses, and those other guys are saying, hey, no, man, I'll just do it for um, the brother it costs me. No, I just need to buy lunch. Um, yeah, let's do it. I'll get my $10, no, man. You know, so when they're competing against those guys, like, is it that they're pricing themselves out or is that we need, like, how do we get the whole, get everybody to, in the ecosystem so that the customers and the entrepreneurs are like to understand, hey, this is worth this, you know, you can't expect to get this for $200. 
if it really would twenty thousand dollars. I think that's an age-old paradox that we're all going through. Like in big business, you have your WalMarts, where you have your cheap goods, and you get what you pay for, right? And so, in the creative industry, you have your ten dollar version of it, and you get what you pay for, right? And so, in the short term, it seems as you're being undercut, but I think also. In the Caribbean and the global Black community, we know that you have to have more than one job. Yes, you want to go to college, you can go to Harvard, you can go to Oxford, you can go whatever, but you need a, you need a skill, right? That degree, and you're not guaranteed for a 30-year job with a gold watch anymore. So if you have a PhD in art history, English, you wrote the most amazing dissertation, and you want to be a lecturer, if you're also a great graphic designer, you will never be hungry because when you don't get tenure, you can still pay your bills by being a graphic designer, right? And so the same thing happens if you're fully into the creative industry. If you know that your work is this and you've researched it and said that, you know, the going rate for my level of skill is X, and everybody wants to undercut me by 50%. In the business world, you need to find a different type of client. You need to find out where they are and how to attract them. In the meantime, how do you eat? You eat by doing whatever that skill is. If it's doing hair, if it's doing this, it's doing that, do that. But you know what your high skill is and you need to find that client. And you need to pitch that client and get in that realm so that you're getting paid for what you're worth for the long run, for you to stay in business. Because the short-term business, yes, you can do it for $10, but you're going to be unhappy. You're not going to do a good job. And then everybody's going to know that you're that person. So, I mean, for you, right, you operate in any creative industry, right? I mean, and you think about the creative industry, it's like, how, like, how do you price these goods? Unless it's something like standardized. So, for example, like graphics, right? It's for a logo. I mean, everybody has a fair idea of how much you should pay for a logo, right? Because... There's so many people writing logos and what, what have you. But for what you do, like what keeps you up at night in terms of running your business? Not your creative practice, you know, Adrena. What keeps you up at night in terms of running your business? I would say that it's changed over time. So I've had this business about 18 years. So initially it was human resource issues was huge. Getting people who were skilled reliable, and that I can completely rely on, that took about five years. So now I have a team that I know that I can call text at any time and I can rely on them. They can be available or not available, but I know the quality of their work. We can work together anytime, anyplace, right? But that took about mm. the first five years. It was really hard. Hiring people, having to let them go, you know, figuring out how to ask for certain things. Like you think you just want a camera guy. No, you don't want any camera guy. But you have to go through a couple to understand who works with you best in personality and what their strengths are and how to determine on that particular project the type of person you need to work with you. I would say sort of next issues were all of the legal requirements or the tax requirements in running a business, making sure you pay your taxes on time, 
making sure you have all the licenses you need, all of that sort of back-end paperwork stuff that at times you have to do if you can't outsource it. But even if you do outsource it, you still need to be able to manage it. Growing the business, being able to expand beyond clients to know what kind of clients to get, how to pick your clients and interview them, and billing, again, not only pricing, but then also getting paid. Any other risk involved in your business? Yeah, there's always liability depending on where you're working. So particularly for the United States, there is nuances involved in if you're working for with, with high-profile individuals, if you're working with children, those sort of protections that you need to be mindful of, making sure particularly with clients and creatives, particularly like um, if you're doing video or graphic design, you could quote per hour or a flat rate. But within that flat rate, you have to understand, you have to manage their expectations that if they review something, they can't review it unlimited amount of time because you're putting then an unlimited amount of hours and after a while, you're paying them to do the work. So contracting is very key. You have to know what type of insurance you need for a particular project. So if you're doing graphic design, you might not need liability insurance, but if you're on a set or you have a lot of people that you're moving with you, you probably want a significant amount of liability insurance. And also some clients require that you carry uh, like umbrella coverage for those particular projects. So you have to know that in advance. So what about the Caribbean diaspora? Do you do a lot of work with the Caribbean diaspora? Like you have a lot of projects involved with the Caribbean diaspora. I know you have that radio show with Mimi and Barrington where you interviewed me back in DC. Like, um, I mean, what else do you do as it pertains to the Caribbean diaspora? I know that's a passion of yours. Yes, I'm always looking for different projects and we're constantly trying to come up with our own projects to do and initiate those right now. So we did... Carafesta over the summer, which was an amazing experience right. and would love to do more. Hint, hint out there, podcast world. <laughs> so always open to more things. I'm always trying to go to different events and activities where I can meet more people in the diaspora, find out what they're doing, find out uh, different collaborations. You know, I'm lucky enough to go to Trinidad more often now. So had a great experience over the holiday, visiting a lot of businesses, Caribbean businesses with friends and families. So hopefully that'll generate some different things. When there's call for papers, there's the um, Museum Association of the Caribbean that was last in, I think it was Martinique, which I didn't go to, but I did follow online and they're doing amazing work. Uh, would love to do more with them. Would also love to do more in the Commonwealth in general, I think there's a lot of interesting things going on on the continent and also in Europe that involves the diaspora. So would love to get plugged in there. Um, so I'm always looking for opportunities when people mention it or just, you know, reading up on the trades. You're always looking for opportunities, but the Caribbean businesses, we're also looking for opportunities to partner with the diaspora, to get the diaspora, to invest in us, to work with us and everything. Because you, you guys across, I guess, in the first world, I know you don't like the first, second and third world classifications, but I mean, you got to call a spade a spade, right? Yeah. In the first world, you got easier access to financing, possibly cheaper access to financing. Your cost of living to salaries is a little better than what it is in the Caribbean and everything, right? So, I mean, I guess my question is, like, how would Caribbean businesses, how should Caribbean businesses go about targeting the diaspora to get them involved because we know we know that the diaspora 
they're very passionate about the Caribbean and everything, you know, every carnival, everything they, they get out in the flags and, and, and everything, right? But how do we target them in our marketing efforts? You know what I think the most powerful thing is right now? Social media. So I think Black people mm-hmm. in general own social media. We highly index on the use of it socially. And so oh, yeah. translating that into business and to dollars seems a next step if it isn't already happening. Like, for instance, I can't remember how I necessarily found you, but I think it was something about Caribbean business podcast and you popped up, right? And so from that, I've, you know, listened to you almost the episodes. I think I'm, I think you have a new one out that I haven't listened to, but I know you're a trusted source. So the people that you interview, I follow, end up following them on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and then just getting more and more familiar with their businesses, then I can see opportunities. So like, I think it's, is it Karen? Yeah. Karen Rose. Yeah. Yeah, his things about telecommunications, and I follow him on LinkedIn. He does a great job in terms of LinkedIn. So when there's an opportunity, he's the first person I'm going to call in terms of that. Georgina Terry, great opportunity if I'm looking, people are looking for coaching and other things um, that she does. Definitely going to follow up with her. It's a two way street. So I would really encourage Caribbean business owners, whether you're doing it as a side hustle or doing it full time, whether you're in the creative industry or the finance industry or another industry, really finding out those people in the diaspora who's doing that because you already have an affinity, right? We want to stay connected. We want to know what's going on. We want to give back in a sense. We want to work together. We want to learn from each other. So that hurdle is already overcome. So reaching out to us saying, hey, this is what I do. I want to stay connected. That's the first step. And then looking for ways and just keep plugging at it saying, hey, what about this? Hey, what about that? I'm going to be in town. Can we meet up for coffee? That doesn't hurt, you know? Okay, but in terms of like the general posting and everything, like, I mean, I mean should we just be posting every every day, every week? Or, I mean, how do we how do we get your attention, right? Because social media is a crowded space. So, I mean, what does this look like? I'm just kind of draw this from- <laughs> Well, you know what? I think you have to be authentic about it because I think that can break through the clutter. Sure. I might follow on Instagram. I might follow a thousand people. I don't know at this point. And whatever the algorithm, the algorithm changes all the time. But there are certain people I search for because I know that they have relevant content. So if it hasn't shown up in my algorithm, I'll search for them and I'll say, hey, you know, I haven't seen Kevin post for a while. I know he's probably posted something. Let me see what's new. And if you haven't posted, I'm not thinking you're not doing anything. It's just, I'm going to wait for your next post, (laughs) right? To see, I'm going to check back again to see what's going on. I'd rather have that than, again, you know, what you ate for breakfast, what you ate for dinner, what your dog did. I'd much have it it be relevant and authentic. So, Adrina, I mean, as we get ready to wrap up, I mean, I have to ask this question, right? So... We speak a lot about legacy and telling the story of others. And what I really want to know, Adrena, is what legacy do you, what do you want to leave behind in this world? What's your legacy you want to? That's a good one. The legacy that I want to leave behind is that everybody has a story and it's worth telling. You know, don't keep it to yourself. Tell anybody who will listen that cares. 
everybody has made a significant impact in the, the steps that they have taken on this earth and share that. Make sure that people around you know that story, know what you've done, because most of us have forgotten most of what we've done. And hopefully we leave people better off than when they first meet us. And so share that story, your children, your family, you know, ask questions of your elders. Sometimes they don't tell us because they think we don't, it's not important. And it could be hugely critical. And oftentimes when we're younger, we don't realize how significant they are until we're older and we've lived life a little longer. So I would say always, always, always share your stories, share the things that you know with everybody around you. All right. So Adrina, right now I'm going to give you open mic, open forum, open platform to say anything you want to say that we haven't covered in this interview. I would say that I am extremely hopeful about the global community. And the way I stress it is that we have a lot to learn from one another. And it's not just about our zip code. It's not about where we live right now. It's not about where we grew up. I think that's important to share, but I think it's important that we continue to talk and we always talk and we continue to listen to one another because that's the strength. And even if we lived on the same block, our experiences are different and we can still learn from one another. But I enjoy travel so much because I get to meet people. I get to hear from them. They'll listen to me and I'm better off for that. And it impacts my life and it shapes what I'm doing. So I would say, particularly in the diaspora and also on a policy level, on a government level, no matter who is in power on anybody's country, the diaspora is critical to engage on a structural level and to recognize that because we need each other. Podcast World, there you have it. Make history every day with Adrena Eiffel. Subscribe to Caribbean Power Lunch at caribbeanpowerlunch.com slash subscribe. Check us out on CastBox, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you listen to your podcasts. And with that, Adrena. Yes, Kevin. <laughs> Podcast World Season 5 We are out Bye